I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of Capital Allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's private equity deals, Arvind Kumar from EQT discusses Innovise. Arvind is a partner and global co-head of technology at EQT, a public company overseeing nearly $100 billion in assets across infrastructure, real estate, and all stages of private equity. Innovise is a mid-market vertical software company that provides smart water infrastructure to utilities and engineering firms. EQT carved out two subscale non-core businesses from public companies to form Innovise in 2016. Our conversation covers the Innovise business and the water infrastructure market. We discuss the sourcing, diligence, and deal dynamics of the complex merger. We then turn to integrating the two businesses, including a management team change, systems integration, product rationalization, and sales reorganization. We close with EQT's process for selling the business to Autodesk and decision to refocus from the middle market to its flagship strategy despite its success in the space. Please enjoy my conversation with Arvin Kumar. Arvin, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Ted. Why don't we start with a little bit of just background and what's happening at EQT? Sure. Well, EQT has a lot of exciting elements to it. We're publicly traded through EQT AB. We're now a global firm with roots back to Scandinavia, starting in 1994 from the Wallenberg family and investor AB. We've grown from a tiny Swedish private equity firm to now a global investment firm with 1,500 employees, over 23 offices, with nearly 100 billion in assets under management. And that is spread across several different active ownership strategies. We have a venture capital fund, a growth equity fund for a little bit more mature businesses, and then our flagship private equity fund, which I'm in. And then we have a real assets group, which is an infrastructure fund and a real estate fund. And we have several other strategies as well. Those are the main ones. Is there a core DNA that goes through the firm? With the heritage being Scandinavian, there are a few things that are really positive that run through. One is we are very progressive when it comes to ESG, thematic investing. Countries like Sweden are are much further along than most others. And we can see that in the way we pick companies that we invest in and then try to have influence over. And that's been going on for 20 plus years. Most others are catching on now, but we're I'd say relatively far ahead of the game. Two, there's always a belief in, in local with local knowledge, i.e. if we're trying to do a deal in the US, you should have a US team rather than port people over from, let's say, Europe. If you're trying to do a deal in Amsterdam, have local Dutch folks, right? And that comes from being, again, a small Swedish private equity firm trying to grow brick by brick into other countries. In Europe, you have lots of different languages and nationalities. And so it's really important there to be very regional. So there's that similar pattern you see through different funds and, and over time. 
Great. Well, we're going to dive into Innovias. And why don't we start with just what this company is? Sure. It's a really exciting business. This is a water infrastructure vertical software business. So their software helps utilities and engineering firms essentially model and simulate how to replace and or build for their aging infrastructure or new infrastructure to help deal with water issues, which are only getting worse each year. Stormwater, wastewater, flood, drainage, and then just infrastructure general issues. This is the software that helps you model what to do, essentially. So a super critical workflow. What's one example of how the software applies to helping clients? Sure. You know, we talk about 100-year floods that are happening now much more frequently than every 100 years. So when there are floods happening or we project to happen, the software will help tell, let's say, a water utilities engineer that, hey, we need to replace this aging pipe sooner because the modeling we're doing shows that it's going to break down pretty soon. Or, hey, the flood has already happened. We need to react quickly. Before we go spend millions of dollars on actual CapEx, we need to actually do a proper side-by-side simulation on what to build, how much it's going to cost, over what period of time, with which vendors, et cetera. Where'd this company come from? It's actually the product of two separate carve-outs. In 2016, we acquired a business called XP Solutions from an Australian engineering firm called Cardno. It was a non-core asset for them. And then less than a year thereafter, when we had XP Solutions, we determined that buying Innovize would be very complimentary and would, would help diversify product lines, give us much more geographic diversity. XP was in Europe and Asia. Innovize gave us the US in a much more serious manner. And then we felt like we had a really good CEO from the XP acquisition that we could have run the whole combined Innovize. All right. So we got two different carve-outs. Let's circle back to maybe the first one. We could do both. What is it about these businesses that we're attractive to? Well, first, we looked at the market. This is clearly an underinvested market from a technological perspective. Water utilities are historically and notoriously conservative and relatively slow moving. We're very paper-based, had adopted very old technological solutions or had in-house solutions. That's one. Two is, again, it's not a good thing, but there are more and more natural disasters occurring more frequently across the world. So the need for sophisticated technological solutions to do modeling before you spend lots of money is only growing in importance each year. So the market tailwinds, we felt were not cyclical, but rather secular. We thought that XP and then Innovize were the leaders in their respective markets geographically and with the, with the different product lines that I mentioned across water. So we thought that we picked the right companies in a good market. And then in diligence with XP, we thought that Colby Manwaring, the CEO of XP, was a backable CEO that was running a subscale business and could scale if we could make other acquisitions. And so that's what we were excited about. What does the competitive landscape look like when you say these were the leaders in their markets? It really was a relatively benign competitive landscape. You, you had Autodesk competing in parts of the market, but really not focused on water. You had Bentley doing the same. Other than that, it was a lot of mom and pop solutions. There were small engineering firms that would write custom code. So you didn't really have scaled vertical players that were just dedicated to water. How technically difficult is this software? That's quite technically difficult. That's why it's really hard for an SAP or Oracle or horizontal solutions to replicate this very specific water workflow. It is technically complicated because these are water utilities that only do basically water. So this doesn't port to other types of utilities. Secondly, 
these are basically ERP type systems. This is what engineers run their mission critical operations on to figure out what they're going to build in terms of new or replacement water utilities, right? So the cost of failure is extremely high. So the ROI is very, very high for the software because it's very complicated that if you don't model the correct way, you're going to lose millions of dollars or, or cause a lot of problems for your community. I still want to get my arms around a little bit. Like, how do you model that a pipe is going to be wearing out or something like that? It's similar in concept to how car manufacturers model building a car or replacing parts or how a software can model building a factory. Similar analogies to these physical assets. But what I appreciated that there's dozens of, of variables that matter and you can't get any one of them wrong. There's the thickness of the pipe, the type of the pipe, the diameter, how it fits with other parts of the greater water utility system and so on and so forth. And so that comes with decades of actual of engineers knowing what they're doing, understanding the blueprints and getting to a, a huge amount of technical detail, which is why it's a very technical sale. What are the economics of the businesses or what did they look like? Yeah, combined, you know, they were roughly high 20s million of revenue, but very profitable. These are close to 50% margin businesses. And what did you see as the key issues or risks in looking at it? Well, XP was a very subscale business. We bought it for roughly $50 million. And so, you know, it had about 4 million of EBITDA. It was a carve out, right? So one of the biggest areas of complexity is doing a carve out of a subscale business. So that in and of itself was complicated. Two, we felt like we needed to replace almost all of the management team other than the CEO. So doing a management refresh while putting a, doing a brand new ERP installation for a subscale business and then attracting a good enough talent for a subscale business is additionally challenging sitting in Portland, Oregon, where there's plenty of other good companies. Then when you add on Innovize, that's another carve out. So two carve outs in relatively short order. So there was a lot of execution challenge to do two different ERP instances, integrate teams, upgrade the teams, and still have them grow. What did your due diligence process look like? Well, we had been following the water infrastructure end market for a year plus. And so we leveraged a lot of end market work that we had already done. So our due diligence process was well before there was ever a sale process on the market. We wanted to make sure we had the right trends, the right market growth, that we had the right diligence assumptions on market leadership, market share, and our ability to very critically invest in the R&D suite to upgrade aging products. Right? Again, these were non-core assets of public companies that we had to carve out. So that was a big risk that we had to get comfortable with in diligence. The other diligence area was who can we have run these companies? And that's where we leverage really EQTs, what we call industrial advisors. These are people that help us with diligence. And then several of them will, will serve on the boards of these companies. We use their network to attract and identify uh, management talent. Once you've figured out you like the space, you've identified the companies, some of the key things, you know what the issues are. How do you go about getting a deal done in a carve out of a public company, let alone two? It's not easy. You have to find out who the decision makers are, try to talk to them, whether that's the CEO of the parent, you know, the divisional leader, and really get to know them earlier. You have to have a really good sense of standalone costs, the reintegration and the costs associated with creating a standalone company. That's a whole different diligence stream that's not typical for a normal down the fairway deal. So in addition to the usual market diligence, company diligence, we spent a lot more time on carve-out diligence, tech diligence, and then finding good management teams. And in this particular situation, given 
the size of EQT, you do have a lot of different products. This seems like a really small deal. So how does that sort of fit into how you're thinking about spending your time when you're making the decision to pursue it? Well, this was in our U.S. mid-market fund, which was about 700 million plus. The first deal was still pretty small at 50 million, but we thought we could do M&A to increase our equity check, which is what we did with Innovice. But our, our selection process, to answer your question, is very rigorous. It's an opportunity cost to pick this one. So why, why this one? For us, back to our EQT's overriding consistent philosophy about being thematic and being very progressive with ESG, we thought that this was not only a really good market with the right business trends, but it was very complementary to our ESG philosophy, that this business served a real purpose in the world to help essentially communities deal with 100-year flood type situations, and that we could help this business further uh, accelerate investment in, into this market, and that we could impact our ecosystem and our vendors. So walk me through this deal dynamic. You've sort of figured this out. It kind of fits into what you're trying to do. You've identified the decision maker. What happens? This was an auction, but we didn't have a lot of competition because it was relatively subscale. So the larger private equity firms were not focused on XP. And we, again, because we had spent a year plus understanding the market, we were able to essentially pay the clearing price in a competitive process with several other bidders. But we established a really strong relationship early on with Colby, the CEO, such that he was an advocate in the end. But it had to still be a clearing price in an auction. And was that a multiple round auction? It was, yep. How does that process work? They go through first round bids and then they down select from there a group of folks that they think can pay the, the clearing price and move relatively quickly and you know not have an overly complicated contract. Those are probably the three components. And then from there, like in most deals today, you have to work really fast to then try to preempt uh, the process, right? And so that's what we essentially did uh, after the second round. And we felt uh, in the last look, given the relationships we had forged specifically with the CEO. Did they tell you ahead of time what the clearing price is? No, not typically in an auction. Oftentimes, if it's just a bilateral deal, you can have that conversation, but not typically in an auction. So in this one, you know, Colby likes you, but... Most of the time, auctions, highest bid wins. What did you end up paying for the first business? So that was $49 million. That was about 11 times, trailing. So we felt like it was a pretty value price, given that it was a non-core asset and you know, it was going to be pretty complicated. How did you think about the financing of it, knowing that you want to go down the road and do acquisitions? Zero debt. We just did 100% equity financing. Again, it was, sub it was a $49 million equity check in a $700 million plus fund. So it was already relatively small. We didn't want to put on additional debt and make the next acquisition more complicated. How much time did you spend with Colby before you knew, okay, we want to go after Innovite? We had already identified in our market work that there were only a few relatively scaled players to go buy. And so we already knew that Innovise was probably the one that we wanted to go after. We were aligned with Colby, which is why then six months later, we ended up essentially acquiring Innovise. You have to have that conviction up front with the CEO and that alignment. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to work. Was Innovise a process as well? It was, but we, we initiated the process because we were knocking on the door of Stantec, which is the public company that owned Innovise. And so they had concluded, we don't want to just do a one-off deal with, with, with XP. That'll look bad as a public company. So it was the same sell-side banker from Baird selling Innovise as well as XP, which was, again was helpful. There were a couple other folks around in the end, but we felt like we had more synergies. And again, we preempted. And so what'd you end up paying for that business? That was 270. So combined, you know, we're at 
319. And multiple on the uh, With synergies overall, it was roughly 15 times. So on a standalone basis, it was about 19. So now you've got these two businesses. You did mention you're going to keep Colby, but everyone else has to go. Why don't we walk through a couple of aspects of this integration? Sure. So why don't you start with the team? Well, so we had identified that at XP, really only Colby rose to the level of quality that we would be happy with. So we, we actually kept the team on while we were doing searches. And then Innovice came relatively fast. So then we said, actually, let's look at refreshing the team on a combined basis. There was a founder and CEO of Innovice that was a strong personality that we thought was a risk because he had the whole team basically reporting to him. It was a very strong founder culture. And we couldn't have won the deal if we said, we're going to replace you. So we actually kept the CEO and founder with uh, grooming Colby to be eventual CEO of the whole business. And we said, hey, let's see if this works. But we were relatively transparent that the structure with Colby and then the Innovice CEO you know, was going to be somewhat transitory and we'll give it a year or two. And that founder and CEO basically determined that, and, and we determined that it wasn't the right fit. So Colby became the CEO sooner than I think we had anticipated, which was a blessing in disguise. And then we combined, basically found a new CFO, chief revenue officer, chief te- technology officer, chief product officer, almost everyone on the team. So it was a massive refresh. These founder conversations are never easy. How did you go about the process of both being able to win the deal with the support of the CEO and the simultaneous idea that, boy, this isn't going to be the long-term solution? We were pretty straight up. I think that's key, is being transparent and saying, hey, look, you want to be CEO of the combined business. You've built a great business. You are, you are three or four times larger than XP. So let's go with that. But we have a certain governance model with independent board members. We do weekly calls between the, the responsible partner, the chairperson, and the CEO. We're partners now together. And we're relatively upfront about the time commitment and the investment between EQT and the company and the CEO. And you know, he said, okay. But that was, in practice then, was not you know, what was performed in reality. It came relatively self-evident within a few months after close that this wasn't the right fit. So then we moved him to the board, then he ultimately exited. What was it about Colby that provided that excellence? Well, Colby had been in the industry for a long time and was trusted in the industry. So that bought us a lot of time to make changes because they trusted him. Two, and Colby was a very transparent communicator. So that, that helps when you're making a lot of changes that people don't feel like you're saying one thing and doing another. And three, he was really open to feedback from, from EQT, whether it was board members or, or deal team members. He wasn't stuck in his ways. He was a very flexible thinker, which really was important. And so when you're integrating these two companies, you've got presumably two different CFOs, two different CTOs and down the line, and you ended up recruiting in different talent. How did you go about the process of assessing what was there? We do a management assessment for most of our companies where we hire an outside advisor and we look at how are the individuals are in terms of their own quality. And then we look at how do they work together? So is this a good team? So that's an independent review, which we, do, we did on, on both companies. And the conclusion from an independent review was, hey, we need to really make some changes here. You know, there's the CEO who we can back, but we really have to re- look at replacing almost everyone else. So it, we try to be as objective as possible because then we can also go to the management team members who are getting interviewed and are understanding that this is a real rigorous process with a lot of transparency. We can go with that to them with the findings thereafter, and it doesn't look like we're going around their back because we're not. 
When do you start doing that process? Ideally, it's right after signing the deal, so we don't lose time. Depending on the deal, there's a couple month window between sign and close. And so you can use that time to your advantage to do the management assessments. What happens with the culture when you're stripping out like an entire layer of leadership in two different organizations? It's risky to change the culture, right? And to have a lot of attrition, morale issues, which is why having a specific plan of attack of sequencing what you're going to do when is really important. And for in this specific case, they, again, they were both corporate orphans. So the culture wasn't incredibly strong to start with. That's one of the value levers we thought we had, which was, you know, a standalone company with a real culture, with a real mission, with a stable management team, you know, attractive equity incentives, and we can actually improve the culture quite a bit. So then you can have better morale, better performance, and so on. The other challenges you get putting business together go across the board from systems to product suite, the brand of the organization. How did you tackle each of those? Let's just start with the basic software and systems of these two businesses. Yeah, that's one of the areas that didn't go as smoothly as we had planned, right? These are ERP installations are very complicated, especially when it's a subscale company and a team that's changing. So we, we actually had one failed ERP implementation and we had to do a second one. And that's just at XP. And then we had Innovise on top of that. So that was a Herculean effort that I would say was, would not be in the box of things going perfectly in our investment. <laughs> but there was a lot of work to be done. And that's where a really strong CFO that we recruited made a huge amount of difference in the end. What was it about the CEO that made the ERP implementation work? The CEO played a role, but not the major role. I'd say the CEO just sets the priorities for the management team. And when the CEO says this is extremely important, we're all going to be spending time on ERP implementation. It's not sexy. It's not fun. We would rather be spending time with customers and writing code. But for us to succeed, you know, this is why the European implementation is important. That, that, in my view, was Colby, the CEO's job. Then it's much more the, the finance team working with the technologists and the outside you know, implementation consultants to actually make it happen. That's my view of the CEO's role. And how about the product suite? So you've got two different businesses. What does that rationalization process look like? They had way too many SKUs combined. Pet projects would turn into a product. And so it was a very complicated set of proliferation of SKUs at each company. You have a proliferation of products where there's very little revenue associated with some of the products, but there's costs. So we did product line profitability analyses and pruned the products that weren't selling. Combined with, there were some products that were aging that had very old code bases or that were not being invested in because, again, this, these were two corporate orphans. And so it was both a, a, a rationalization of product exercise with the profitability analysis, as well as an understanding of, okay, which products do we need to invest in from a defensive perspective, such that if we don't invest in them, we're going to have customer churn. Then there's separately, which products are we going to invest in from an offensive perspective? Because we think the market is going in this direction and let's invest in the next generation of engineers, code base, SaaS technology, et cetera. There's this aphorism that sometimes small businesses are small for a reason. And I'm curious what you saw in terms of the growth trajectory of the two businesses independently, and then what you were able to do to shift that once you owned it. We viewed the water hydraulics market as about a $600 million market, so it is relatively niche. However, we concluded that we could expand the TAM by investing in artificial intelligence, essentially getting much more into the operational 
AI side of water utilities, which is not at all what XP or Innovise were doing. And that if we could acquire our way into the operational analytics side, which says, hey, what are you doing in terms of not replacing or building new pipes, but how are they actually performing? That that's a different skill set and that's a different market. And so that got us excited that we're now participating in billion dollar plus TAM, if we can get our way into the operational analytics side. And so that's what we did. We, we acquired our way into that market with a company called Imagine. What were the deal dynamics of like the Imagine token acquisition? That was essentially $3 million in revenue. And so it was a small acquisition. Even then, though, we had the CEO talk to them quite a bit over really a year. So in these small businesses that are niche in the water utilities industry, it's actually counterproductive to send in the private equity guy to talk to them. So it's much better to keep it CEO to CEO. And so that's what we did. What happened with these businesses when you put them together? Well, so we had a lot of good things and some, some learnings. One thing we learned was that we needed to redo the sales organization. What happened was you had one organization that was a very technical sale-oriented structure and another one, Innovise, which was much more of a salesy, typical enterprise sales structure. And that didn't work culturally. It's two completely different languages. So one value lever we drove was, okay, let's create pod structures. So you're pairing a sales, salesy person with a technical person. And so that was the result of the integration not working great in the beginning. And so then we had a real strategy to execute with a better sales leader who actually drove that vision. So that's one example. Two is, again, when I go back to the R&D point, that's a big point of failure is, is integration of different products. Lots of different code bases, engineers spread all over the world mostly on premise. We hired a really great chief product officer that basically helped integrate the technology side in a much more elegant fashion, uh, both the cloud vendor to the code bases and getting rationalized to the number of offices and so on and so forth. So at EQT, we, kinda ha we don't have a, a unilateral approach. Typically it's, okay, we have a strategy and uh, let's empower management to go run it. But in an active ownership model, we say, look, you know, when we need to make specific changes, let's do it together, such as the sales reorganization and the R&D improvement. And it resulted in a much better integration once we got in and helped the mentor management through our board. You've got the original Innovise acquisition. You've got the Tuck-in acquisition of Imagine. You've got a new management team. You've got the sales initiative restructuring. How long does it take to put all this stuff together? Yeah, it took, I'd say, two years, which is of a lot of intense effort. You know, weekly calls with the finance team on the ERP implementation side. Again, our board being relatively hands-on in mentorship, helping on the sales side, the R&D side, and so on and so forth. So I'd say a good two years. What happened to the economics of the business, say the revenues and margins, profitability, as you're going through all this? The market is a really attractive market that just keeps growing. It's a very sticky maintenance revenue base where customer retentions like 97, 98%. So you basically keep growing regardless of all of that change. That very sticky, loyal customer base gives you the license to make tough changes without your revenues declining. So the business continued to grow kind of low teens. But the impressive thing was once we actually did all the integration work in those two years, when we exited the business, it was growing at about 20%. So growth really picked up, which is not surprising when you have one team that's integrated. So that lever of the stability of the revenue allowing you to make internal operational changes, management team changes, is that fairly pervasive across different deals? 
Uh, yes and no. In very niche vertical software with very, very complicated workflow, yes, it just like Innovise, then they exhibit those characteristics. When it's much more horizontal and big TAM companies, then there's much more usually competitive intensity, both from a sales and marketing perspective, as well as an R&D perspective. So there's always a race to have the best features and functionality and have tons of salespeople going after big and often greenfield markets. And so if you have to make really tough, big changes and you have big strategics like an SAP, a Workday, ServiceNow, Adobe, and so on and so forth coming to eat your lunch. So that's why I've generally stayed away from horizontal big TAM markets with a lot of R&D intensity. I'm still blown away by the fact that it's not a large deal and there's just tons of levers and integrations that you had to bring together. I was wondering if you could walk through, and you've touched on some of it, all of the different pieces of EQT that you ended up bringing into this deal to affect different parts of the transaction. I'd say there's three different parts. The first one is our EQT digital team. Our second one is our board. And our third one is something called Motherbrain. So on the first part, EQT Digital is an in-house group of ex-operators that are there for free. We don't charge for their services. They help deal teams during diligence of companies, as well as once we own these companies, they help in a pull demand function, help with marketing, with ERP implementations, with assessing and then helping modernize tech stacks, for example, or drive AWS savings across the portfolio. So that's a very valuable resource that we used at Innovise, specifically on the ERP implementation side and the rationalization of the R&D portfolio. Second, then, is the board, right? I mentioned a few times, you know, how we refreshed the management team, how we we advised and mentored them on the ERP implementations and having a much more modern sales force and R&D. A lot of that was different board members with different functional skill sets. Typically at EQT, we just have the deal partner, the chairperson, and then roughly four independent board members that we go find that map to where the company's trying to grow and improve. And so each of them are accountable to driving value. And they kind of have a buddy at the management team, right, that they talk to quite a bit. And so that worked really well. And then finally, Motherbrain is an in-house developed group of data scientists that sit across Stockholm to New York to other parts of of the world that help us. We've created basically our our own in-house CRM system, as well as sourcing tool for add-on acquisitions. This was started out as a tool for the ventures fund to basically find companies. There's so much noise out there for venture firms. So use data science to get through the noise and find great companies, early stage companies to go buy. Why that's relevant here is that's how we found Imagine. So that's a tiny little company in Canada that we were able to source through Motherbrain. So you make all these changes, a lot of heavy lifting in a short period of time, the growth accelerates. How do you decide how long to hold the company? We had a lot of debate about that, but you know, we bought the two different companies in late 2016 and mid 2017. Then we were sitting basically in the end of 2020 saying, look, we keep getting inbound interest every week, one to two folks every week. Two, the business is really in a great spot now, right? Well integrated. So it's a clean business. So it's sellable. Three, the metrics look great. 20% growth, 40 plus percent EBITDA margins, so rule of 60 plus. Most importantly, it's in a great market, right? Where ESG and the water problems are exponentially worse than they were even four or five years ago. And so there's just a lot of either private equity funds that had their own specific ESG funds 
or strategics like the Autodesk's Bentleys and, and many others for whom this type of asset is extremely important and also digestible, still not that big. And then finally, it's hard to market time. It's easy to look now and say that was a great time to exit. You never know what's going to happen. But we were about nine turns of EBITDA, we thought, higher than what our exit multiple assumptions were in terms of where we were seeing other comps trade. So we said the confluence of all of those factors, let's run a process you know, and see what happens. We're, we're sitting on a great asset. We don't have to sell, but if the right price comes in, we'll do it. So in the process of deciding to sell, right, as you mentioned, like people want to buy these ESG assets. It's really important to investors. When you have a good one that's working, how do you go through that process of, of saying, okay, you're now going to lighten your ESG portfolio? It's a good question. If ESG wasn't so consistent a, a way we operate anyways, and always has been and always will be, then that would be a major red flag to our LPs, our investors, saying we're getting rid of a prized ESG asset. But if you look through our portfolio, what we say publicly, and look at the impact we're making on our ecosystem, almost all of our portfolio companies are making a really positive ESG impact, whether it's reducing carbon footprint, improving diversity at the management team levels, and so on and so forth. So I didn't feel like we were taking a major ESG asset out of our portfolio, which would then be underrepresented. It's actually only increasing over time as we get more and more thematic with our investing. So you're licking your chops now, right? So you put this business together, it's growing, it's hit all its metrics, and it's in the ESG space. How do you run a process to sell to maximize the value of the asset for your investors? Given there was so much interest from both private equity firms and strategics, we didn't feel like we were well set up to run a process ourselves. So we baked off three firms, each of whom had been calling on us about Innovice and had really good bankers and sector knowledge, both the vertical software, but also the, the water end market. And you know we listened to all of them and we picked the firm where I thought they would have both the best execution, but also pre-existing relationships with the most logical strategics. It was a great asset, but this is one we were probably going to fully exit rather than roll over, uh, just given where we were in the fund. And so a strategic exit, we thought, could be much more lucrative than a private equity exit. And so we picked the banker based on those set of judgment calls, essentially by me and our exit committee. And then we ran a, we basically did a series of curated fireside chats for some of the strategics first, because they're typically slower moving than aggressive private equity firms. So we started them well in advance got them interested, gave them you know, a rundown of the business, gave them access to Colby. Then we started the private equity firms basically a month later because we know they can move fast. Then we ran a process that was both of them together, right? but we gave a, a month head start to the strategics. They all submit their round one bids. We then, one of them emerged much more aggressive, both in posture, price, and interest than the others. We ran a second round where they again differentiated themselves and then it was a fairly logical choice. Autodesk was already a partner of Innovize. So we felt like they were very credible because it's, you know, try before you buy, they were already partners and calling on us quite a bit. So we felt like the combination of their price, speed, and then familiarity with Innovize that they were going to deliver. What does that look like in terms of both numbers and deal terms? Autodesk paid a billion plus 35 million of tax assets, which was roughly about 30 times EBITDA. And so that was, we thought, a pretty you know, good price. Generally, businesses like that were trading in the low to mid-20s. And, and the business, again, was growing 20% organically with 40-plus percent margins. Do you scratch your head at some of these purchase sale multiples? 
I do now. I mean, at the time with free money post COVID, uh, with all the stimulus, and you can model interest rates really low, and then DCF multiples look really high, or the, the amount you can pay is very high. In this market environment where interest rates went from close to zero to you know three and a half four percent, no one's paying those kind of multiples today. And so there's a time and place for that. But even at the time, we thought these are record prices, which is why we sold much many more businesses than we bought. You mentioned that you weren't going to roll a piece because of where you were in your fund life. Interesting decision point that that, that happens. How did you think about the other options, right? There's now continuation funds. There's all different ways that if there's an asset that you want to hold, you could or your LPs could. I would have loved to do that if this was in our flagship fund. This was in a U.S. mid-market fund where we decided we weren't going to raise another fund and just rather focus on our flagship fund. So given that we weren't going to raise another fund, it would have been too complicated to have a, another continuation fund. And, but normally for an asset like this, if this was in our flagship fund, I would absolutely want it to stay invested in it. And so that decision not to raise a new mid-market fund, what was the impetus for that? You know, we were still relatively new to the U.S. and we thought focus is really important rather than doing two different things with two different teams. And so we decided, let's not get too big, too fast with two different strategies, but rather focus on our bread and butter, which is our flagship fund. And let's double down in our flagship fund. We were just in healthcare in 2014. And then we got into a little bit into services by 2017. The idea was, why don't we grow further into technology, which is when I joined. So it was more about simplicity of strategy. I'd love to talk about the perspective of the complexity and size of this deal in relative to, say, the size of EQT. Where do you see, in retrospect, the opportunities and challenges of the middle market? There's a lot of companies like... XP and Innovise that are undermanaged and that can be transformed, right? Like a, a rough diamond that you polish. There's a lot more of those than moving up market. However, there's also a lot more funds and competition chasing those exact things. So there's actually more competition in the mid-market. The level of market imperfection has gone down over time because there's just more capital and more talented people in the mid-market. So that deal today would be a lot more expensive. That's the consequence of, you know, of, of much more sophistication in the mid-market. But it, those opportunities are still there, for sure. And so as you're looking at different strategies you could pursue under the EQT umbrella, how do you think about the different levers of, of risk and reward? Right. So price is clearly one. You've said there's a certain channel that you love in these vertically integrated software businesses. It's gotten to be more competitive landscape, a more expensive landscape. Some of these things about what businesses are great and aren't are more recognized. So where do you sit today and, and look out? Yeah, it's a question we're really focusing on given the market environment we're in. I'll break it down into three buckets. One is, is the market secularly growing that is ripe for digital transformations? It's never a linear path, but is there long-term demand for what this company does or this market does? Just that it should grow and is not super susceptible to a recession or an inflationary environment. And then therefore, the, the risk reward is, starts out being more attractive right away. That could be eroded by price, of course, but start there. Second is, what is the level of control we have to then make a, a transformation? Right? Let's just assume for a second we are going to do transformative deals only. And so if we're going to try to do transformative deals where we're improving organic growth, integrating different companies, making acquisitions expanding channels and geographies, 
then the more control we have, right? So the less people involved to make a decision, the lower the risk is. So control deals we're pursuing much more than co-control or minority deals. Third is what further reduces risk for us is for what the business can do, where does that map to where EQT can be a differentiated? So if it's expanding internationally or in 23 countries, that's something we can do that many others cannot do effectively. Or two, can the business benefit from our EQT digital team, right? Mother brain, our governance style. Most businesses cannot. And so we, we don't spend time on them. But the ones that do map well to where, where EQT can help, like Innovise, again, further mitigate the risk. So what looks like lower risk to us may look like higher risk to someone else. But then those are the deals we try to do. What are some of your key takeaways from this deal? One, carve-outs are really tough. And European implementations within that are extremely challenging. I'll always assume more cost and more time because it's going to take a while. Two, vertical market software, niche vertical market software is, for me, the most attractive place, because it, especially for businesses that you really want to transform and, and clean up, because you have, again, the license to make a lot of tough changes. And three, you know, a strong management team really is the difference between an average deal and a great deal. And that was the case here. Once we integrated and got really good management, that made a lot of difference. You got Autodesk interested, made the business grow faster and have a, a more coherent strategy. One more question for you, Arvin, which is what is your favorite aspect of private equity? I think the constant learning, right? I think the fact that you have to be good at like 10 different things all at once and, and, and it never stops. I think that to me is my favorite thing. Well, thanks so much for sharing this very successful deal at Invite. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.